We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bieler Garcia. You know, shooting with a silencer can be more enjoyable and is definitely safer for your hearing. American Warrior Radio is proud to be partnering with Silencer Central, where they've been making silence simple since 2005. Silencers are legal in 41 states. If you'd like to explore your options, start at silencercentral.com to check your state's rules. Their experts will then handle all the paperwork and they'll even thread your barrel. They also have financing options. At Silencer Central, silencers is all they do. They are the experts. Silencercentral.com. You know, sometimes we get guests referred to us. Morgan Lorette came to us via Marine veteran Scott Husing. As far as I'm concerned, anyone that Scott recommends is absolutely golden. And Morgan's story about his time as a Blackwater contractor certainly sounded fascinating. Then I cracked the cover of his book, Guns, Girls, and Greed. I was a Blackwater mercenary in Iraq. I was fascinated and a little bit concerned. Gun Girls and Greed reads like a modern version of the classic novel Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, with a dash of mashed TV screenwriter magic thrown in. It's a great read. More people need to know about the role of private armies in our Middle East wars, and this book gives it to us completely unvarnished. With one disclaimer, if you have children between the ages of 7 and 17, lock this book up in your gun cabinet until they're older. Morgan Lorette, welcome to American Warrior Radio. No, thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Uh, Morgan, I'm not kidding. Literally, at the end of your book, you very plainly state that you will not let your children and grandchildren read this book. Yeah, I mean, it, it's raw, right? And I wrote it like it was. I didn't want to be the person that uh, wrote a book and went through the process without explaining the emotions and the anger and the PTSD and all those things. And, and with that comes a lot of uh, really coarse conversations. Yeah, well, Morgan, I understand because in the all the years, pretty much my whole adult life, I've been interacting with and, and supporting the men and women of the military. You know, there's a certain language, frankly, particularly among combat veterans, that is used to illustrate and communicate. You know, if if you've been there, done that, have the T-shirt, it's it's the only way you really communicate. So I I get that, and I again I encourage people. Honestly, I think that this is a a, a modern version of, of Catch Twenty Two. Just I mean, the way you present sort of the absurdity of everything that was going on over there. Uh, let's go back a little bit. You grew up in a small town, and you joined the Air National Guard to kind of get out of that small town right out of high school. Yeah, so I grew up small town USA. A lot of us kids in, like, 1999, that was the praying grounds for uh, recruiters mm -hmm. to get you into the military. And it was either go and work construction, roof houses, or I could join the military. And I thought, why the heck not? Plus, Let's be honest, we hadn't been in a war in a long time, one week in a month, two weeks a year. That was really nice to pay for college. So uh, September 11th kind of wrecked that for me, but that that was my intent was to just get out and go see the world a little bit and be able to come back if I wanted to or, you know, spread my wings and fly. And and get on the GI Bill. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was going to be the first one in my family to graduate from college was kind of my intent. Now, Morgan, in the book, you refer to getting a, a notice on your pager about September 11th, which maybe dates you a little bit. But how long had you been in the Guard when um, when September 11th happened? 
I was coming up on my two-year mark in the National Guard, and yeah, I had had the sweet pager on my hip while I was sitting in a college class, and they went off and said, you know, gave the phone number to my Air National Guard base and then 911, so I hopped on a, on a, a pay phone, which most people probably don't know what that is anymore, and called down there, and they said, get your butt down here, we're in, you know, DEFCON 4, so it was all hands on deck at every military base, not just at the Air National Guard base that I was at. Now, your introduction to the uh, romanticism of war then consisted of girding a tarmac in the middle of the desert heat. I'm guessing that was at uh, Luke Air Force Base? I was at the Air National Guard Base, actually, right off of Sky Harbor. So that was, you know, making sure that tanks weren't driving through the front gate and uh, looking at the planes and saying, yep, that one hasn't moved. We're okay. And for our listeners in other parts of the country, that is uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. Correct. Yeah. So it's a it's a small little base that has really, really old uh, tankers. So the ones that refill the fighter jets and all that. So that was that was the extent of what I would do is we would watch the planes fly out every once in a while. They'd fly back in and the, the pilots had it way better than us. But I got to read a lot of books sitting on the tarmac. Now, you're, let's talk a little bit about your transition to, to Blackwater. That as I understand it, uh, you served with them for 18 months, 2004, 2005. It was right after those contractors were um, killed and murdered and hanged on, on the bridge there in Fallujah that you decided to, to join up. That seems some odd timing to me, Morgan. Yeah, so the neat thing about the National Guard is you get all walks of life to join it, and some of the guys that joined were former recon Marines. And I ended up befriending them, and this guy's like, hey, we should uh, go join Blackwater. And I was like, first off, I'm not cool enough to join Blackwater. Second off, they just had those guys hanged off the bridge. Um, that doesn't sound like it's a, a good idea to me. So he went to Blackwater. It was at the training center, and they needed people so bad and so quickly that they really did everything by word of mouth. And my buddy said, hey, I got a guy. Here's his phone number. The next day I got a call at like 5 a.m. because I was on, you know, West Coast time and they were on East Coast time. And they said, hey, you want to join Blackwater? And $550 a day, we can get you out here tomorrow. And I said, yeah, sign me up. Why not? That's 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 an impressive sum of money. I could see where that might be sort of convincing. Now, just in fairness, Morgan, you were not that there's anything wrong with cooks. I mean, armies travel on their stomach, but you were a defender. You were in the Air Force Security Forces. So. You knew the right end of a rifle from the wrong end. But let, let's talk a little bit about that because well, one theme that I kind of see throughout the book is you talk about people of your generation who were trained, you know, particularly the special forces, but never, and I use the air quotes, got their war. And to some extent, this opportunity that Blackwater gave them the chance to experience it. Yeah, so even I went into the ground offensive in 2003. We set up the air base at Talil. That was the primary aerial supply route as, you know, the soldiers were moving forward up into Baghdad. And even then, like, it felt like, yeah, I was in the ground offensive, but, like, you're trained so much to go through the process of, you know, shoot, move, and communicate. And then you, you don't really get to do it. So I was one of those that was like, well, you know, I kind of got my war, but I didn't. But if you look back, unless you were in Somalia or you were a desert storm, there's all these people that were trained for, you know, 10, 15 years, special operations, Navy SEALs. 
And they didn't get to go and experience war. And when war is your life as a military member, when that is the one thing that you are training for as an infantryman, a Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, uh, when Blackwater came out and said, these are the people that we're looking for, a lot of them jumped at the chance because you, you go through all that training and you feel like you kind of missed something. So everybody in the classes that I was with, you know, I was Air Force Security Forces, there was MPs. Uh, but a lot of them were special operations guys, especially in the early days that were, you know, trying to figure out how they could get over there and, you know, experience it. Now, Morgan, does the Air Force have the equivalent of like a, you know, combat infantry badge or, or something like that that designates you were actually in a combat zone? <laughs> no, but I did get an achievement medal with combat valor for when I went into the, the ground offensive in Iraq. And I, I'm not sure what the combat valor was for, but... It, it felt really cool on my chest. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, so that the idea of you, you saw not not only the money, which was extremely generous, even by today's standards, but you also saw this as the, the opportunity to really kind of wet your beak and and real real shooting kind of stuff. Yeah, and my buddy put this to me. He said, "Look, we, you know." Maybe we're smart enough to go to Wall Street and make millions of dollars and retire. But when you're sitting on your front porch, would you rather tell them about the time that you sold a stock option and made a million dollars? Or would you rather tell them cool stories that you got to do over in Iraq working for Blackwater? And at the end of the day, I mean, that's what you have is you have your stories. And I thought, geez, this guy is very prescient. So that's what... That's what kept ringing through my head as I was over there in Blackwater thinking, wow, I'm way, way out of my element. But Fair enough. hey, there's cool stories that await. Fair enough. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Gila Garcia. We're speaking with Morgan Lorette. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with Morgan Lorette. Morgan served 18 months in Iraq as a contractor for the now infamous uh, Blackwater firm. And uh, Morgan, what I probably should have done my research a little better, but what is Blackwater even around other than just selling T-shirts and coffee mugs? They're pretty much a licensing thing now. So when Blackwater got in trouble in 2007... Uh, they then changed their name to Z and then Academy, and then they sold their, their business or private security to Triple Canopy, and now it's all under a big conglomerate called Constellus. So Blackwater, just it does not exist, but you can still get a really cool T-shirt with their uh, bear paw and their, their sights over it. <laughs> Something I'd, I'd never wear, much less pay for. But Morgan, so the other interesting thing about this, well, let's back up a little bit. You talk about, you know, in your book, you describe your comrades as, Lethal, but with different egos. Army Special Forces are different from Navy SEALs, are different from Rangers and Marines. and But there is also what you called funk fakers. Um, but, but coming back to that, this is in the surge, in two, or not the surge, but in 2004, you know, Black, there was a kind of a transition from the military mission to a State Department mission. And Blackwater, was, I mean, the government was just letting all these huge contracts and and Blackwater decided that they needed, there just weren't enough Navy SEALs or the former, you know, Marine recon folks out there. So they started just word of mouth, anybody who can come in, come in, right? It feels like that in your book. 
anytime when you have exponential expansion or growth, you are going to end up hiring more people that are not the most qualified. And that's true of business. It's true of Blackwater. I am the first one to tell you that I walked on, you know, I I stood on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. These guys were highly trained. They were lethal. They knew what they were doing. And I was the one that kept quiet and just tried to learn. So when Blackwater expanded that much, you know, you started first couple classes were all special operations guys, and then you start getting into class four or five, and you started getting a lot of your MPs, your infantry guys. They had to do that to be able to fill the contract. And as long as you could go to Blackwater, you could shoot, move, and communicate, do your physical fitness test, all that, uh, and get a get a security clearance, then they would clear you hot to go into Iraq. With a grand total of two weeks of training. Yeah, it was pretty sparse back then. It was it was a solid two weeks of going in. And where Eric Prince really kind of figured it out is you're bringing in people that are already trained to shoot, move, and communicate, and you have to train them on the Delta. You have to train them on how to protect a diplomat, how to walk with them, you know, how to open the doors for the Suburbans, all that other stuff. So, yeah, it was a really quick two-week train-up. Maybe it was two and a half. I can't remember. And then hop on a plane head to Jordan. You describe some of your comrades there in Iraq, and, and they've all got, most of them have nicknames. Were there any that you just really, I'm not going to go outside the wire with this guy. I don't trust him not to shoot himself in the foot, much less me in the back. Yeah, and usually what would happen, that's the funk fakers that you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. So they go and they tell you about all their amazing things that they've done in the military, and then it turns out that it was lies. And there was a guy just before I got there, he was out in the red zone. So where, you know, you could get bombed and he freaked out, locked the car doors and nobody could get into the armored vehicles. So those were the guys that they would always put into like the head shed or, you know, the places where you were doing mission planning as opposed to actually going out. But there was there was a number of those guys that were, you know, older. You could tell they were there for the money. And um, they drove around Baghdad like it was South Florida instead of it being an active war zone. Like he was in their blinkers, going nice and slow. It's like, this is not, you are not in the right spot. So I'm no genius, but if you're trying to avoid bad guys, maybe using your blinker to tell them which direction you're going is not the best idea. No, we had a guy that was notorious for it, and he would wash his Suburban. So, you know, the dirtier the car, the better. And there's only right. so many people that drive Suburbans, but he would keep his vehicle just immaculate, go out there and wash it, and it was shiny black, and we were like, will you stop? Like, we're already a big enough target. We don't need the shiny black to, you know, help people point us out. That probably stuck out at your sore thumb in Baghdad. Now, we talked about one of the impressions I get from your book, one of the takeaways, Morgan, is our, you know, the military, quote-unquote, the shooting war was over. Now, you were still getting shot at, but it was now a State Department mission, and our government was not prepared for that. I mean, they weren't prepared to to staff it. No, they absolutely weren't. So when when Paul Brimmer left, we handed the state of Iraq over to the interim Iraqi government. And they had done, they cleaned out the bath party. So anybody that knew how to run a government facility was no longer allowed to do that. So what do you have to do? You have to bring over the FAA and the State Department and, you know, oil people to to show them how to run these different ministries that they have. And in order to do that, you have to leave the comfort of your own little base and you have to have somebody that protects them. Most of those, the State Department has a very small uh, protective detail unit, but they weren't trained for combat operations. They weren't ready for it. 
And they, that's why Blackwater got that contract. They said, we just need a bunch of guys that can go over there, you know, drag their knuckles across the ground and get this person from point A to point B without them dying. You know, I've, I've had guests on before that talked about the difference between this situation and what we did in, in Germany and, and Japan in World War II, where we you know, actually maintained the, the foundational elements of their government. You know, we left the emperor in place so that they could help rebuild themselves. But, you know, we pretty much, I think every Bathus and, and Iraq was lined up against the wall and shot. So they, they were starting from scratch. The, the, describe your mission in, in small words so that a civilian like me can understand. So describe what your mission was there in Baghdad. Yeah, really easy. You have a very important person. You drive them from the safe area to the scary area, and then you drive them back. And the rules of engagement are very fuzzy because you're a U.S. civilian in Iraq. So are you under the Iraqi laws? You're outside of like the base, so you're not under the federal government. You don't have the UCMJ. Like it was a very like your moral compass kind of had to lead you through that process because the rules of engagement were so fuzzy that it was really just get person from point A to point B and get them back safely. And if you did that, you know, you could high five and go have some beers by the pool. Now, as part of the recruitment, did Blackwater promise you some kind of immunity or protection? Because were you technically, were you a State Department employee or were you there with a State Department badge? So we we actually originally got the State Department passports and they said that if anything happens, you have diplomatic immunity. We'll get you out of country as fast as possible. And they did that with a number of people. Um, but like I was saying, the laws that governed us are are so fuzzy and are still so fuzzy that it was really kind of did the government, the U.S. government want to prosecute something or did they not? And how fast could we get you out of there without um, anybody noticing so that we could kind of brush it underneath the rug? Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Morgan Lorette. He's got a book out, uh, Guns, Girls, and Greed, describes his time as a Blackwater independent contractor, a mercenary, and then smaller words for folks like you and me. And just there's some messages in there that we as civilians need to know about that period in our government's history and that way of waging war, if you will, or maybe waging protection and as we're, when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about this situation because, as, as Morgan described it, they were highly paid men on with a mission, but absolutely no rules of engagement, which led to some interesting situations, some some funny, some discouraging, some frightening. You can find this podcast and hundreds of others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or on your favorite platform. It's Amazon, iHeart, Spotify, Pandora. We're everywhere. Please listen and share these important messages. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Silencer Central Studios. You know, shooting with a silencer can be more enjoyable. It's definitely safer for you. We're proud to be partnered with Silencer Central. Check out their website, silencercentral.com, to find out if owning and using a silencer is legal where you live. And then you can explore your options with their experts. They will help you handle all the paperwork. They'll submit it. They'll then ship your silencer directly to your front door. They'll even thread your barrel for you if you need that kind of help. They also have financing options at Silencer Central. Silencer is all they do. Silence made simple, silencercentral.com. 
We're back with Morgan Lorette. Morgan uh, started off his career in the Air Force as a security forces, a, a defender, and then signed a contract to go to Iraq to work for a, a, the now infamous Blackwater. He was there from 2004 to 2005. Morgan, you know, we're talking about quite the cocktail here. you got young men with something to prove or and or a chip on their shoulder, maybe copious amounts of liquor and money, no rules, and very few consequences. That's can be kind of volatile. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely volatile. And that's kind of going forward. Is that the way we want to wage war? Private security contractors are being used in the Ukraine. They're being used in Syria. Oh, down at the U.S.-Mexico border. What has happened is private contractors have become a government line item so they can throw money and personnel at any problem that they want. And then they can distance themselves from it so that if something bad happens, they can say, oh, that was a private contractor. That wasn't us. That wasn't the State Department or DHS or DOD. You name it. Yeah, I get that. Frankly, in my line of work, my day job, uh, plausible deniability are two of my favorite words to string together uh, in the English language. So I kind of get that. I don't know still, though, if that's a, a good idea or not. We'll get to that later in the show. But um, that was what was needed, apparently, at the time. The Some of the stories you relate in the book, with all respect, sir, uh, I'd use the word debauchery, perhaps. <laughs> and, that's, and that's fair. I really wanted to do the ground perspective of the war because all these books are being written about the war and their politicians or generals, the ones that worked on the ground. So I wanted to give the ground truth. And, and there's good in there. We did some amazing, great things. And there's bad in there where it's like, was this the right thing to do? When you're running around Baghdad with the ambassador to Iraq, do you wait for that car to come up on you and blow itself up, or do you engage that car first? And and that's really that fuzzy area, the rules of engagement, where are you doing the right thing to where you can go to bed at night and sleep? But it was not mandated. It was really, you know, by each individual what they would do and, and couldn't do in those situations. I, I Morgan, again, coming from an outside perspective as a civilian, that they're it wasn't fuzzy at all. I mean, there were no rules of engagement. If you felt like you need to pull the trigger, and there are several examples in the book, you just did so and, and asked for forgiveness later, maybe. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's just where it was. And you have to go back to 04, 05, when everything was a car bomb. That was the, the modus operandi for, you know, Al-Qaeda and, and the insurgencies. So, that was the biggest fear is, what do you do in this situation to make sure that you can go home um, and make sure your principal gets back and, you know, hopefully still be able to sleep at night. Even the military at that point, I think you would have to say, had some pretty fuzzy rules of engagement because we just hadn't been in an urban insurgency type war. So you just kind of adapted on the fly. Now, Morgan, I try and learn something from every author that I've had on the show. And I learned something new from your book right off the bat that everything is stolen on a deployment unless it's pink. <laughs> Yeah, I learned this on my first few deployments with the Air Force, is if you go in with a brown towel, you're not going to leave with that same brown towel because everybody takes everything. So if you buy a pink towel and a pink soap holder and a pink toothbrush, nobody steals that. So that was everything I had that could be stolen if we jumped into a shower. It was pink. And I probably still have that pink towel to this day somewhere packed <laughs> up in uh, in a storage unit. Just in case. Fair enough. Now, you you know, the, the decompression stories, I guess I'll use that word liberally, that I, I read in the book. I mean, everything was high speed, low drag. 
95% you know, mundane activities, but then 5% just sheer terror and adrenaline. And, I mean, things that happened, like, for example, there apparently there was a, a lovely pool at the embassy where you and your comrades and others would, would relax and kind of take in the end of the day. But allegedly, someone said that allegedly the embassy pool's diving board was closed to everyone because of certain folks. Yeah, and I know exactly who it is, um, but I, I won't say his name. But when we were off drinking at the pool, you know, people would get up on the high dive and start showing off, right? You maybe see all your recoveries. All these swimmer guys would jump up there and do flips. Next thing you know, somebody's grabbing a bike and they're drive, they're riding it off of the, the pool. And then somebody had this great idea that they should go grab an air conditioning unit. And they're the outside units, right? They're not like the big ones, uh, but they're they're still pretty heavy. And they lugged that thing up to the high dive and flung it off there to great cheers to everybody. And uh, within within 24 hours, everybody at Blackwater was like, that wasn't us. I mean, it totally was us. But, um, yep, everybody called a silence. We've got to put that on. You know what would have chapped my hide about that, Morgan, is you're in a place where it's just god-awful hot. I mean, don't throw in an air conditioner, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's that's critical equipment. But I did, anyway, um now, did you actually do a mission wearing a Groucho Marx disguise, and what were you thinking? I did. I did. I was the driver in one of our Humvees, and I put on those Groucho Marx glasses with a mustache, and I thought, you know, if we drive by somebody and I smash into a car and they look over, maybe they'll find the humor in my Groucho Marx costume, even though I pretty much just ruined their entire vehicle. Um, looking back, I don't think they found the humor in it, and they probably... I probably didn't knew that at the time, but I had those. I have no idea where I got them. And I thought, well, why not? But this is also at the same time where we could wear shorts and cut off shirts and body armor on top and just kind of go out and do whatever we wanted. Yeah, maybe it was a cultural thing, Morgan. I'll, I'll cut you some slack there. <laughs> and I just one quote that really struck me. You apparently are a big Harry Potter fan, but you couldn't get the book. So you ask your team members if they could make a special run out to, to Camp Liberty and and here's how it goes. I need the new Harry Potter book. No. I'll never ask for anything again. No. I'll buy everyone who makes a run Burger King. Done. And off you went. And that was sort of the loosey-goosey way things were handled. Yeah. So Camp Liberty had the Burger King and the Green Zone had like the Pizza Inn, which was the knockoff for Pizza Hut. So if you wanted to get somebody to go risk their life on the most bombed route in Baghdad called Route Irish between the Green Zone and the airport... You would have to buy Burger King for everybody. So I had to pull the Burger King card so I could get that sixth book. And, and then the sixth book broke my heart. And I thought, man, I could have probably saved 30, 40 bucks. <laughs> and maybe getting shot and blown up. I want to get really related to it just because we're from the same region of the world. One of the challenging things of doing a radio show in multiple markets with, with guests from all around is people may not know this, but Arizona does not observe daylight savings time. So we don't touch our clocks. They don't go forward. They don't go back. They just tick-tock, tick-tock, go on. But sometimes when we're facing those changes, then I've got to check in with my guests again who might be on the East Coast or some other place. They know kind of Mountain Standard Time, but it's Arizona, so kind of freaky. Let me just call you the day of to make sure it's right. And that actually showed uh, some of your teammates what a kind of a backwards country boy you were. Yeah, so I showed up early because the clocks changed in Iraq. And apparently they got rid of this afterwards, but 
I showed up early. Nobody was there. I thought, oh, I just missed the radio call. I went back to bed. And then they called me an hour later. I'm like, where are you? And I ran over there. And they're like, daylight savings time. Like, I have no idea what daylight savings time is. And <laughs> I get like, I went through basic training, so I had to have gone through it once. But when you're basic training, you just get up when, you know, Reveille calls. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it never even occurred to me that people change times. And, of course, over there, I, I, I'm the one that's trying to explain to people that Arizona doesn't change time. And there's a little part in Indiana, and they're like, geez, Morgan, you are, you are a backwoods hillbilly. What the heck is wrong with you? Well, just so you know, I really appreciated that part of the book. Uh, Morgan, when we come back, I want to talk about, obviously, it wasn't fun and games. It's a very serious situation. And there was one experience you relate in the book about where you were out there kind of being a tourist and, and wanted to take a photo and thought it was all fun and games until the folks uh, told you a little bit about the backdrop of the photo, and it turned out to be very serious business. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Bula Garcia, we're talking with Morgan Lorette. He's the author of Guns, Girls, and Greed. I was a Blackwater mercenary in Iraq. You can find that at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your favorite bookstore, wherever you shop for your books. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia, having a great chat with Morgan Lorette. Morgan served uh, 18 months as a contractor with Blackwater Security in Iraq. Right after the, the shooting, official shooting war had stopped, and now it was a State Department mission, but it was certainly still pretty hairy there as they're, they're moving high-value uh, guests throughout um, outside of the green zone into uh, very dangerous places still. And there's a lot of serious points in your book. The one that really kind of struck me was you all were at a I want to say it was a police station and here's this bullet riddled wall and you all thought that it'd be a good backdrop for a I was there did it photo but then they told you the source of those holes why don't you share that with our listeners yeah so my buddy you know he put ammo across his chest Rambo style and I was all at my kit and we we stood up against the wall we flashed this big huge smile like oh look at all these bullet holes and then uh, it, when our principal went in, they, you know, toured the, the police station and they said, yes, this is where it, after 1993, uh, Saddam Hussein did the, um, So he went up to the Kurds and just absolutely slaughtered them. Lots of stuff on that. He got tried for it, convicted and hanged. Uh, but that was the wall where they went into the police station, the Iraqi military grabbed all of the Kurds that were up there lined them up against the wall, and shot them uh, firing squad style. Morgan, I think nothing in the book summed up the kind of hopeless absurdity of the Hearts and Mind campaign of, of, of that, that portion of our Iraq mission, more so than what I'm calling the great toilet fixture caper. Yeah, I mean, this is the microcosm of the war. Any time you go into a nice chow hall, they'd have Fox News or CNN, and people were talking about, you know, how great the war was going, and we're making a lot of progress. But we had this uh, police station up in northern Iraq in, in Kirkuk, and the only thing that needed to be done to open this up so that the Iraqi police could use it was that they had to put in the sinks and the toilets, and that was per the contract with KBR. So KBR goes out there, they put in the sinks and the toilets, they go to inspect it so that the police station can be used the next day. All of it's stolen. And this happened two or three times. And the, the State Department guy, young guy, was 
so happy to get this over with. This was going to be like his crowning glory to be able to say at the end of the year, this is what I achieved. And we drive over there thinking, man, these toilets are going to be there. We're going to get sign off on it. And we walk in and all the toilets are stolen. Literally from the night before, all the sinks, everything is stolen. And you could just see that poor kid was so dejected and so sad about it. But it was really kind of a microcosm in that we were more interested in building up the country than the people that were actually there that we had hoped would build up the country because they were so used to Saddam Hussein and being out for themselves. Of course, they're going to steal the toilets. I mean, why the heck wouldn't they? And how many times did this happen in a row? Five, six, seven, a dozen? It was happening before I even got to Kirkuk, so I don't know how many times, but it happened at least three times while I was up there, and it's just broke that kid's heart every time because it's not easy to get toilets over in Iraq. Their toilets are kind of holes in the ground. So you have to get those toilets shipped back into a big base, get them to KBR, get them installed. I mean, it was just a lengthy process. Morgan, I, I sort of see a transition in your book from maybe a little bit naive but hopeful person going over there to say, you know, I'm going to help these people build their own democracy and, and, and you know, move forward. But then uh, pretty quickly a, a, a numbness creeps in. You know, first of all, you become numb to the constant rocket attacks and you don't even get out of bed. You eventually become numb to the whole mess. I mean, you quickly became jaded and eventually you, you just didn't even care about the people there. You just wanted to complete the mission and get home. Yeah, and... I joined the Army after Blackwater, and I was trying to explain to my soldiers that you're going to go over there and you're going to want to do amazing things in the first three months. After three months, you're going to kind of realize what is going on, and then from there on, you kind of get frustrated by the whole process. And part of that is that you're frustrated because you feel like you're working harder to build their country than the people were. And the other part of it is that you're so constantly stressed out just by the day-to-day stuff, getting rocketed, going out and, and you know, thinking you're not going to come home because the car is barreling down on you. And you get PTSD, and this is kind of where PTSD starts. It's somewhere in that, like, six-month time frame. And coming back, you you look at everybody, and you're like, they just don't understand what that's like. And, and they don't, and they never will. And it's just really hard for soldiers and contractors and everybody that goes over there to kind of adapt back to that life. Morgan, let's talk about that because I think that that you know, the transition story or the difficult the transition, I hear that so many from from com- particularly from combat veterans, and you have a reference in the book talks about a story about the I won't get this right, but basically a, a fable where they hire the the giants to guard the gate, but they don't want them back. They're they're big, they break things, and you know they're trying to tell people don't be a giant anymore. And in this case, we're taking hardened, seasoned warriors like yourself, and then all of a sudden, you've got to transition back, and there's no support system for independent contractors. You're just, it's kind of like, thank you, here's your check, goodbye. Yeah, and I think that's why you see the suicide rates for contractors as higher than the military members. When you go over as a contractor, you go over pretty much by yourself, or there's two or three people, and then when you come home, as a military member, you come home with your unit, whereas a contractor just goes home to themselves and to their thoughts, to their family, and have all those same problems and same difficulties that soldiers have without the ability to, say, call the VA or, you know, reach out to your friends and go sit down a campfire and, and talk about it. Because your friends, if they're even in the United States, they're spread across the entire U.S. A guy's not going to go from Florida over to Tennessee just to go kind of talk about his feelings. So it's 
the single use Starbucks coffee cup theory that I use, and it's that they will use you as long as they need you. And once they're done with you, they'll discard you. And it's the same way when you go to Starbucks and get a coffee cup and you drink it and there's about a third of it left and it's cold and you think, ah, I don't really need this anymore. You throw it away. That's what PMCs have become. And they're proliferating throughout all of the government. It's not just State Department and DOD now. It's everywhere. Morgan, we've got just a couple minutes left, but I definitely want to talk about, I read an article that you authored called, How Would We Know When It's Over? I referenced Marine veteran Scott Husing at the top of the program. He's the one that referred you. Yeah, so there was no end state to the war in Iraq. And I can tell you this definitively because I was there during the ground offenses. And we were all told we were going to be there three to six months. We were going to hand off the country and they were going to, you know, do their thing. And then it just kept going and going. And you got scope creep from we're going to get rid of Saddam Hussein to we're going to build schools and we're going to make sure little girls are able to go to school. And it just kept changing over the course of time. And as a ground pounder, as the soldier on the ground, if you don't have that into a mission, you never know when it's going to be over. And I mean, you could look at Afghanistan. Nobody knew when that was going to be over until we had that that terrible incident and we got everybody out of Afghanistan. You can't wage war that way. You have to have a definitive start and a definitive end. And if you don't, then the soldiers on the ground are not going to know how to act and react throughout that process. So neither of you both were officers in the military, both highly educated men had been on the ground, but neither of you could actually define what success was supposed to look like in Iraq. Nah, I mean, I, I can tell you right now, it's not what it is now, that's for sure. And yeah, I mean, it's not them uh, hanging out with the Iranians, that's for sure. But yeah, I, even if you ask me today, I don't think I could articulate what the end objective was for that war. I tell you, one it's funny, kind of coming back to the Catch-22, I, I enjoyed you talking about when you were in the Army over there and, um, you know, less pay but more restrictions. But eventually, or apparently all of you were required to take bicycle riding classes because one knucklehead did something dumb and so all of you had to take online bicycle courses. I'll have to read the book to hear more about that. Uh, Morgan, I just think uh, you and I are of the same ilk in that you know, these stories need to be told, they're recorded and published, so they'll be forgotten. What What is the takeaway that you want our listeners to come out with from, from your experiences there in this book? I want the reader to read the good and the bad of PMCs and then make a decision on whether PMCs should be used going forward in combat operations. Because if nobody knows what happens or happened, then we're going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and still look back and say, what was the end state to that war? And it's not like we don't have enough wars going on in different places right now. I just want that that perspective that you can see the emotion and the feelings and what actually happens on the ground. And is it good or bad? And I, I honestly still don't know the answer. Do you think, uh, real quick, Morgan, in the context of the situation and the resources, do you think at that time Blackwater was a necessary evil? It was, absolutely. Um, just based on not having the support personnel to be able to move people around. If it wasn't Blackwater, it was going to be somebody else. Fair enough. Morgan Lorette, thanks for spending time with our listeners today. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Don't forget, folks, you can get his book, Guns, Girls, and Greed. I was a Blackwater mercy in Iraq. It's a very, very powerful read. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care. 
You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform. 